Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. We focus on um, uh, supporting organizations to talk to governments, but there are other stakeholder groups that we help them talk to as well, uh, you know, in particular philanthropy. Um, and it can be about nurturing those relationships with philanthropic partners as well um, to try and bring philanthropy together with government to try and uh, achieve an outcome and a solution in that space as well. Um, I talk about three points of contact before you make a substantial ask. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thank you to our season sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. A big thanks also to Leadership Victoria for their support for the last few months. Our new Mission Alliance sponsor for the next two months is Tank with a C, then a K. Tank's purpose is to build government and stakeholder engagement capability to amplify the impact of organisations that do good in the world. How do they do this, I hear you ask? By sharing the knowledge and experience of political insiders with for-purpose organisations so that they have greater engagement and influence with government. Anyway, rather than hearing it secondhand, this week on the podcast, I bring you my conversation with Angus Crowther, who is the co-founder and executive director of Tank. Angus is a piercing voice of clarity, purpose and reason in a space in government relations and lobbying that many would consider murky, opaque and unclear as to how it benefits the for-purpose sector. Look out in this episode as to how Angus explains Tank's mission to democratise access to government engagement for the for-purpose sector and to build capability at for-purpose organisations that remains there long after the job is done. You can learn more about the amazing work Tank is doing via their website, which is just tank.com.au, where I encourage you to check out Angus's white paper on engaging for impact, best practices for purpose-driven government engagement. You'll find a link to Tank's website and Angus's LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Reach out. I know he'd love to have a coffee with you, as would the rest of the Tank team. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Angus as much as I did. Angus, terrific to be with you, mate. How are you? Doing very well, very well. I'm feeling hydrated, appropriately caffeinated, uh, feeling pretty energised and excited. Late afternoon on a Friday, that's uh, very optimistic for that time of day and, and part of the week. So, And you look sunny too, which is great. Where are you today? Uh, I'm in Sydney in the inner west, so uh, it has been a beautiful day. It's sort of one of those crisp winter days, uh, but it's been... We've been rewarded with plenty of sunlight as well, so it's a gorgeous end of the week, I think. Wonderful. Well, well, look, my knowledge of you and your work at Tank actually precedes me meeting you. Uh, I heard great things about you, uh, my time at Spark Strategy and before that, and had met up with Neil for a coffee once randomly uh, in a formal life and loved hearing about him. So I was thrilled to uh, to get the reach out from you and the Tank team to do some work together. Really keen to learn a little bit about your early life, career, and sort of work history and journey uh, before Tank. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... I uh, I grew up in Queensland, and so that was kind of my formative experience was the Great Sunshine State. Um, had, in some respects, a fairly kind of traditional um, introduction in life in terms of everything that happened in that space. I, I went, I was educated in Brisbane, but I came from country Queensland from a place called Gundawindi. 
And the reason that I raised this is just sort of there was this sort of stock standard um, and very, you know, privileged and comfortable life that I had and that had been afforded to me. But in my mid-20s, I was pursuing a career in business, I suppose. I was working for a large fast food retailer um, and everything there seemed to be going kind of very well for me. Uh, but I hit the wall because I went, uh, there's no connection here, I think, to a greater purpose. There's no sort of outside meaning to what I'm doing here. And I'm feeling a little bit deflated by this and I was actually starting to get a little bit burnt out. Um, this all led to me going on a bit of a holiday. I went to Nepal and did the Annapurna Trail and I had these moments of clarity which kind of coalesced around bits of wisdom that I've been given uh, across the stages of my life that started to make sense around how important it is to do things that you love. Um, and when I came back from that, I left my job. I left the trajectory that I was on to, I think, or hope become a business owner and make heaps and heaps of money um, and stepped into something that meant a bit more to me. And then it ended up being politics. Um, so it was a huge uh, left field change in that respect. Um, my friends were very surprised. My family were very, were very surprised. But ultimately, it was very rewarding. Um, what I ended up doing is I ended up working in the Queensland government for a number of years um, in the Palaszczuk government and found myself in social sector portfolios and really kind of falling in love with the issues uh, that people were raising in that space. Um, but after a little while in politics, I felt like um, this is all very interesting and very uh, rewarding, but I feel like I can do something slightly different with it, which is kind of how I came to the idea of tank, uh, obviously with my co-founder uh, and friend, Neil Farrow as well. But that's sort of the um, in a snapshot or a nutshell, I suppose, how I got there, sort of changed trajectory in my mid-20s um, and now mid-30s, I suppose, is where I am. Um, I found myself in the space where we have tank. You look phenomenal. I wouldn't have guessed mid-30s, so I'll start by <laughs> saying that. Um, but it's isn't it interesting, the power of transformative experiences to change one's trajectory? I mean, I just think it's, the you know, the Annapurna Trail, that connection with nature and that opportunity to really have that realisation that you want to be doing work that's more in line with your personal purpose. It really is. I think there are a couple of things that sort of struck me in that space was I was a person who was, as I mentioned, you know, a very mindful and I've had a very privileged life. Um, and I saw these people, I saw these um, Nepalese people who had so little and who was so happy. Uh, and I think when I began to look inside, I realized that I'm actually not very happy. I'm doing all the things that I've been told that I'm supposed to do um, in terms of how to be successful and all this kind of stuff. And I'm working, or I feel like I'm working very hard, but it's really not delivering for me on my sort of sense of um, the ideal. Uh, and I was perhaps a little bit too idealistic at that point. Um, and maybe some days I'm still too idealistic now. Um, but the way that I sort of came out of that was stuff it. I've just got to go after the things that actually really matter to me. And I've got to have uh, the courage, I suppose, to say no to all of these other things and just go after what I believe in um, and be prepared to accept that if I fall down um, and hopefully have the resilience and the strength in me to get back up again um, if that does happen. But ultimately, um, I'm very fortunate because I have great people around me as well who have always sort of, while well, they were a bit surprised, have supported that vision. And I think from that time onwards, um, I've just seemed to have found people who have really inspired me in that space. And Tank is no exception. I think we have a really exceptional team. I'm very proud of my team because we all believe deeply in the work that we do. Um, some of them, some of our team are people who have similar experience to me. They've worked in politics. Um, others come from different backgrounds. And I think that diversity is really rewarding in terms of what we do as well. Yes, 
Annapurna, I was thinking about that. It's kind of like the crystallization moment. It was many years before Tank, but it's kind of the turning point that led me to sort of focus more on things that meant something to me in my life. That's powerful. And so, look, for the amateur who's looking inward, they might say, well, your spelling's not great because there's a C in there, but obviously that's intentional. So fill us in on the on the background behind why you've gone with T-A-N-C-K. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's Tank with a C. Uh, so Tank is the namesake of a person called Chris Watson, who people may be more familiar with. But if if they're not, Chris Watson was the first elected prime minister of a progressive government um, in the Westminster system anywhere in the world. It was 1904 in Australia. Um, he was uh, a prime minister in the Labor Party, leading a progressive government. Um, but what's lesser known about him is that he was born Johann Christian Tank. Um, and in the way that uh, Tank is not front and centre, all, all of these details in terms of what we do uh, are sort of, I suppose, a little bit hidden in our clients and the work that they do are centre stage and foremost in terms of what happens. There's all of these details in Chris Watson's life that are lesser known, but which led to those great moments in his life. Um, he was the son of uh, immigrants who came to a new nation seeking a better life. Um, and despite uh, being ineligible to be a parliamentarian, he became one. And against uh, really quite striking odds, he became prime minister and led a progressive movement. Um, and even after his time in politics, uh, he went on to be a founding member of um, enduring institutions in Australia, things like uh, AMPOL and the NRMA. Um, uh, but in the interest of being truly bipartisan, and and I think it is important to be part bipartisan at a minimum, but probably multipartisan is, is the ideal, but mm. perhaps a bit harder. Um, he felt disaffected, as far as I've read, uh, with after, at the end of his time in the Labor Party uh, and went on to become a founding member of what is today the National Party. So that was at that time was the Country Party. So kind of, you know, that story and the journey of him as a person really appealed to us uh, in the formulation of the name of that became Tank. Uh, and that's the reason we went about it there. Fantastic. I mean, it's it's such a multi-layered story, isn't it? There's so much in there character-wise, and it, it must help you so much to be building something where the identity um, of the person whose story behind it has sort of become such a core part of how you shape the business. Is that sort of fair to say? It definitely is. I mean, you know, <laughs> when you're looking for a name, there's kind of uh, stale and boring kind of ideas in terms of what you could do. You know, you pick up your, your surname and you put something else around it and, hey, you've got a business name. And I suppose there's nothing wrong with that, but it didn't convey, um, you know, what it is that we're trying to do. And granted, you don't look at Tank and you know all of those things, but it is about having a conversation. And so much about what we do is about uh, the accumulation of conversations because conversations is where you actually get to share ideas and you get to extrapolate upon that and put that out in the space between people so that they can receive that. And it's the formulation of that that actually leads to change. So I suppose in one sense, that name and having to have a discussion about it really lends itself to, you know, a core component of the work that we do uh, with the organisations that we work to and supporting them and having those conversations as well. Because storytellings, uh, storytelling and the, and the arc of storytelling is so important to consider as well. Yeah, look, you're preaching to the converted. Uh, absolutely <laughs> believe in the power of storytelling. Uh, how did you and Neil meet and, and, and sort of when you were sort of thinking about um, starting Tank, what was the problem that you had identified that you were trying to solve? So Neil uh, and I met through a mutual friend of mine uh, or a friend of ours, I should suppose, uh, I suppose I should say. We went for dinner and we got sort of talking because at that time I, I was feeling um, like politics is very difficult game um, and it's 
unrelenting. And I was just an advisor. Being a politician is an absolutely unrelenting uh, experience. Uh, and often, um, even politicians that I don't necessarily agree with, I really feel for them because I kind of I have seen um, you know firsthand what it looks like for them. But my experience of that was that I was starting to get a bit burnt out, and I was getting burnt out because of the pace of it, but also because I had a sense that there was uh, an imbalance in the way that organisations who went to government, um, who were not necessarily purpose led, who were not you know didn't have a great social mission or anything like that, were often rewarded for their efforts because they had access that they could afford to buy um, through people like lobbyists or you know in house government relations people that were simply unobtainable um, by social sector organisations. Uh, and in the course of a conversation with Neil, we kind of happened upon this subject together because he's very passionate about politics. He's been actively involved for a long, long time. Uh, he's run for parliament on a couple of occasions. And to his credit, has almost become a parliamentarian. Mm. Um, has lo- only it's lost just a really good results. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very impressive. Um, and look, I'm quietly happy that he wasn't successful because it meant that we got to become friends and work together. And, and here we are. But um, really, it was that moment there where we went, Perhaps we could offer something different here in terms mm-hmm. of um, the solution uh, for these organisations and for people who want to do good in the world, but who can't access, uh, and often from a resource perspective, this kind of traditional level of engagement, which is around lobbying. And so that's kind of where that idea was sparked, I suppose, was uh, over a dinner conversation through an introduction from, from a mutual friend. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And so, like, also what I like about that is that, like, failure is never failure because it's just temporary and it sort of sets you on a path to another potential success. And I, I sort of see that a lot in in stories and, you know, obviously hearing back, you know, in retrospect, things sound different. And at the time, I'm sure Neil must have felt a sense of failure. And when he comes on, he can talk about that. So I won't speak for him. <laughs> but, um, you know, isn't it great that that's turned into something wonderful? It is. And I think he and I have remarked upon it over time as well. And it, I suppose it's... Um, I suppose it's what happens is what I've reflected on when you actually do go out and start looking for people who have a common set of values with you. And it kind of brings me back to that story again where I went, I need to change course here because I'm not being true to myself. I'm not actually chasing down the things that I believe in. I'm chasing down the things that I'm told are good for me and are right and all that kind of stuff. And there's, you know, there's love in that kind of advice that's been given to me when I was growing up, but it just wasn't the right advice for me. And I dare say that for many people, you know, um, my suggestion is that a healthy dose of looking within yourself and really asking what what actually is meaningful to me and marrying that with that sort of um, advice of love that you receive is is really important if you want to have a fulfilling and you know sort of purpose-led life in particular totally i think that's great advice and i just i just think you know we spend such a huge proportion of our lives working and even more if we love our work so it would kind of be a little bit crazy almost to not be doing work that you you don't have to love it but at least it should be meaningful to you and it should make you want to get out of bed every day and um and be excited to come to work or to just jump on the computer oh definitely you've got to have grit and you've got to have you know what sort of seems it's almost a little bit old-fashioned to say it this way now i think but you've got to have a work ethic as well i think but if you're relying on work that work ethic every single day of your life it's going to get really hard and i think that's what i found is like no i actually need things that i'm intrinsically motivated by and not just that extrinsic motivation um whatever that might be um and so i think it's really important from that perspective too for longevity but also to unlock creativity and innate potential you know when we talk about self-actualization if you're not chasing the things that you love or that you're interested in, when the going gets tough, you're probably not going to be able to get going or certainly 100%. not in an enduring capacity. 
Hundred percent agree, and I often think a little bit about um, an aeroplane, and sort of there are headwinds or there are tailwinds, and when you're doing something that is aligned with your purpose and what is meaningful to you, you've got the tailwinds behind you. So even the hard things you can get through far easier, or change in directions easier. With the headwinds, everything's harder. Even the good times are harder. So there's yeah, they that. Certainly are. So let's talk a little bit about what type of services you provide um, and the types of clients that you work with and what kind of outcomes you're looking to achieve with them and for them and and have done to date. Certainly. So the kind of services that we provide are focused on building uh, in-house capability and capacity. Uh, The way that I think of values is that Often organizations that we work with, and they tend to be not-for-profits, NGOs, or impact-focused businesses, so businesses that have a strong ESG mantra or focus in that space, uh, in the space that they're concerned with, um, they have existing team members who have the energy, um, but importantly, the understanding of what it is that they're doing, but just need a little bit of support to design a strategy and then enact it when talking to government. And sometimes it's talking to government. Uh, A lot of the time what we do, though, it's advocating to government on certain issues. In particular, we see that there are three areas that organizations tend to focus on, you know, where there's the greatest need. And we look at those as funding, either securing existing funding, so defending or, uh, you know, securing additional funding, new funding. Um, you know, tweaking policy within uh, existing government settings or uh, larger legislative pieces. So literally seeing things that, you know, need to move through parliament in order to achieve the change there. So it's, you know, change, reform, whatever you might want to call it in that space. Those key things there are what we do uh, that we've um, coined as government engagement as opposed Mm -hmm. to government relations, government relations more being the purview in terms of how we look at it of lobbyists. Um, you know, which is that sort of that person operating on a third-party basis, um, whereas yep. we focus more on the in-house capability and capacity. To put it another way, um, we work with organisations to help them communicate with Australian governments to achieve the outcomes that they're seeking. Look, I think it sounds like a very, very sensible model for the for-purpose sector, absolutely, because, I mean, you know, there's also a bit of the idea of the lack of accessibility or affordability um, to that lobbying uh, sort of space, but then also the perception that it's just not quite the right fit for how the community sector wants to advocate and have that dialogue with partners. Yeah, I mean, you know, first and foremost, I think there's an agency problem. Um, And if you've got a lobbyist that is... Uh, you know, it may may sound great, that's giving you all this pro bono work. The issue I think that you have to come to grips with is, is, well, who are they going to represent when they're in a meeting with the minister if they've got a client that's paying them or you that's receiving their services for free? Mm. And I think the answer there is pretty obvious. And so, you know, there's the nature of the beast in that space there. Secondly, uh, I think no amount of uh, meetings of coffee or over Zoom or whatever it is, is going to make that person an expert in your area. Um, and so your representation of the issue that you know intrinsically and know so well is always going to be superior to, to the lobbyist or anyone else in that space. And certainly while I think um, I'm a fast study and a quick learner and I'm passionate about the, the issues and the causes that our clients are concerned with, they will always be experts in that kind of content as yep. well. And so the benefit was that I'm preparing them or my team and I are preparing them to be able to get to the door. So firstly, I suppose, find the door that they need to go through, understand how to open the door, open it themselves and step through it and then perform and then come back and then debrief with us. And then we unpack everything that happens from there and then set a path and go again. And so there's that kind of, you know, that alternative approach because ultimately um, those organizations get to retain that knowledge 
earn that experience uh, and get to operate on an ongoing basis. There's also, you know, there's the agency problem, there's the knowledge transfer or experience transfer, and we solve that. But there's also the issue of being conflicted. If if you're if you're an aid organization and a lobbyist is working with you who's also working with, um, I'll pick an extreme example just because to make the obvious point, if they're working with a manufacturer who sells weapons and you're working in those zones, you know, it's kind of an obvious problem, isn't it? And so there are all kinds of issues like that that exist um, from, you know, the smaller end of the scale up into the really pointy end. Um, but this gets around that as well. Yeah, so what, I, what I'm hearing a little bit is that, you know, whereas the lobbyist model might be like, here's a plate of fish I just caught. You guys are coming in and sort of saying, here's the fishing rod. Uh, so building <laughs> capability in-house, um, showing people how to do the things they do. But what I also found interesting in your answer is that sort of community-led model where the people who know the most and hold the most traditional knowledge should be the ones really leading part of that conversation. Definitely. And I think it's it's part of the democratic system. We have a right to representation as citizens, Right. Um, but I think politicians don't like, like all of us, they have realities and the biggest one is time. And so they don't have limitless amounts of time to go and hear everyone's concern, which is why you have to be really effective when you engage with them, but also you have to be effective in terms of how you differentiate yourself from everyone else. Because frankly, there are a whole myriad of really, um, superfluous and inane, uh, and sometimes, you know, dare I say, a little bit stupid or silly <laughs> requests that people try and take up politicians' times with. I mean, yep. uh, I recall having to deal with an issue with a letter to the minister about the grass at a state school being too long um, and what were they going to do about it? And I want a written response <laughs> from the minister. It's like, you've got to be joking. But the problem is that it's taking up administrative time in the minister's office, in the department, in the MP's office where it's all come through. Because you do have a right of, you know, there's they have an obligation to respond to you, but, you know, you can try not to spend too much time on these things, but that's kind of what you're competing with. You're competing with a whole multitude of really small and inane issues, but also really big ones, and they're kind of headline-breaking issues as well. And so you have to be able to um, cut through in that space, and that's what we help organisations do. Uh, and, you know, I'm very proud to say it's, it's very effective, uh, and that is intrinsically motivating and rewarding for me and I think for our team too. So, Angus, did you have to draft the response to the grass being too long letter? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. And I got to tell you, it's um, it's funny now, but at the time it really was not funny uh, because there was a whole host of other things that we were trying to do, not the least of which, you know, was around things around inclusive education policies and this kind of stuff, which is I was far more passionate about. Um, but, you know, you got you have to respect these things, I suppose. Um, but ultimately, you've got to be able to cut through it and get the attention in that space. Yeah, cut, I like the use of cut through there in relation to grass too. That was good. Um, one one thing I quite liked in your website is, is the idea of sort of the big moments that we see are on the surface and that sort of iceberg idea that, you know, a lot of what we're seeing is just what's visible, but not maybe the, the two thirds, the 90%, however you want to frame it, that's sort of beneath the surface and a bit obscured from view. And maybe that's where Tank does a lot of that work to enable those sort of big moments to happen that are visible. Talk to me a little bit about what that means to you. Mm, definitely. I think, you know, the media release or the press stand up or the story in the paper or whatever it ends up being like, you know, that's what I see as the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more to the story in terms of how you actually get to that point. Um, and that may seem obvious, but I think the process of how you go about getting there is, is less so and it's less evident, but it's ultimately extremely important. 
Um, if you have a defined goal in terms of what you want to achieve and you know that that's where you want to get to, understanding how to get there is is really, really important. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes I think people believe, and I'm going to say, um, you know, I mean this well, but uh, incorrectly, they believe that a six-page letter that gets publicly posted that everyone can see that you send to the Prime Minister or the Premier or whoever it is, is the tip of the iceberg and I'm just it's just not um mm. it's so counterproductive and it's unhelpful often it's all of the kind of quiet work that happens in the background and the engagement piece uh, again around communication around sharing stories around synthesizing new information um and making that coherent uh and accessible by being concise uh is is a large part of the work that happens you know it's all the stuff that you don't see that's out of sight and that's really, really important. And importantly, it happens over, um, you know, at best a medium piece of time, but often a longer piece of time as well. Um, we tend to look at issues in the context of budget cycles and also election cycles as well. So if you're dealing with a budget cycle, you're kind of talking about something in the frame of 12 months. Elections, depending on the jurisdiction, sort of three-ish years to four years where you've got fixed terms and this kind of thing. Um, but even then coming back to budgets, if you're looking at things over the Ford estimates, you're looking at sort of four-year cycles as well. So it it just really depends um but there's all of the work that has to happen in the background that you've got to be across and you have to just be attending to on an ongoing basis and now i think sometimes when i say that people panic or they go oh, we can't do that because it's just too hard and it's too much effort i'm like well your cadence really matters i think you know there'll be periods where you're going to have increased effort that you need to apply and they, yes it's going to take up more of your time but it's just having the ongoing engagement piece and it might look like a social media post every fortnight it might look like what is the objective of our one meeting that we want to have with a politician of relevance this month and if you have one meeting you have one of one uh meeting invite one meeting brief one thank you note to send to a politician it's not a huge workload particularly in the context i think and you have to see it this i think it's helpful to perhaps see it this way uh in the context of the bigger goal that you're trying to achieve and so they're all of the things that are beneath the surface that are cumulative um uh and which i think help lead to you know what we talk about as those kind of great moments it's that mm. when you actually get the breakthrough in terms of what you're trying to 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 achieve in this space yes and obviously you're working in a space where there's a lot of craft so to speak that's aimed at a maybe longer term outcomes rather than things that are short term and i think maybe what you might see in less mature organizations that don't have that great sort of government engagement, uh, natural capacity, capability or experiences that they'll, they'll sort of think, oh, this is what we want. Maybe what we need to do is just get a meeting with the minister um, and, and that'll that'll solve everything. Uh, and so I've seen, I've seen a bit of that in my time as well, where it's sort of like, oh, just um, whatever we can do to get a letter to get a meeting with the minister and then you have the meeting with the minister and then that'll progress everything and that happens and then nothing ever happens after that is sort of so common that kind of that 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 false oasis uh or mirage in the horizon of the desert it's interesting isn't it it is interesting and i think what people need to remember first and foremost is that politicians are charming people and if you get that meeting a politician will probably make you feel like the center of the universe and that you are very important because they have seen you coming and they know how to deal with you and to make you go away and then they know how to put layers between you and them and those layers of the bureaucracy the layers of their office are the layers of the party um and if they if you have no uh foothold anywhere else um to which to get back to that point of speaking to the minister again you're kind of done 
Um, and that's the issue there. And it's, you know, it's, I can understand from an efficiency perspective, it's convenient to think that, oh, if I talk to the minister, they'll go and do it. The reality is very, very different. Um, ministers are, you know, uh, become ministers because of their colleagues within their parties and they listen to their colleagues. Yes, they listen to stakeholders relevant to their portfolios. They listen to technical experts relevant to their portfolios and public servants within their departments and, and, and adjoining agencies. But politically, they listen to their colleagues the most. And so, you know, flipping the paradigm there and going and saying, like, the, the minister might be the decision maker, but we need to actually look at who the influences are on that decision maker in this space. And so taking the time to build relationships, and I'm, I genuinely mean it, relationships, not just sort of this kind of transactional handshake that people imagine they're going to do with a politician, with an MP, a backbencher, is really essential. Because if you do, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we had a client who just by sheer luck, I think, nothing to do with us really, and, and just sheer luck, uh, got a, a meeting with the then Education Minister federally and we went, I would try and delay that if I can, if you, if you can, because we need to try and get some of their colleagues on on side because they're probably going to have this meeting and then they're going to say, cool, we met with you, see you in 12 months and you're going to get an outcome. And they got very excited and they went, no, no, we're going to go talk to them and our problem's going to get solved tomorrow. I hate to say it, but unfortunately we were right. Uh, and they did get then pushed to the back of the queue and they got a standard response after it. And it was like, well, where you have nowhere to go. Now you've, you're back at the bottom of the slope and you've got to do the work that you should have done in the first instance, you know? So that's, that's a bit of a tough lesson. And I would love for there to be an alternative. <laughs> um, but the reality is, is that you've got to put in effort over time and build relationships with people. I suppose one of the ways that I think about it as well is if you have a friend you haven't seen for 20 years who comes to you and asks, hey, I'm in a bind, can you give me $5,000? You're going to do it? As a, <laughs> well, it depends whether you have $5,000 would be the, the starting point for me. Uh, but, yeah, probably not, even if I did have it. Um, great. It's, and that's just an excellent point I think that we can all learn something from is just the nature of relationships are give and take, but also just being in them um, and being present and being there for each other and, you know, um, it's it's like getting beyond the transactional nature of I want this now, help me get it, is that sort of idea around strategic approaches. And another thing I take away from what you said is the the timing element. Um, and for you, just how important is the timing of the of the kind of meeting or the the networking or the the relationship building? Uh, and and what you said about sort of had they thought a little bit more carefully about the longer term objectives in delaying that meeting, that could have been very critical to getting a better outcome. Absolutely. I, I think, uh, I mean, I'm always really interested um, when it comes to budget time, um, you know, just before May or June, if it's the federal or state budgets, uh, or uh, just prior to December with my IFO with Media Economic Fiscal Outlook updates with sort of the mini budget that we talk about how these letters magically appear from people um, that get publicly posted. And, you know, we call on the government to do this and do that. And some organisations have done a lot of the groundwork, which means that that letter is the sort of cut through moment. I'll give them credit for that. But most of the time it's we're going to push this out three days before the budget and hope that what we want is, is in the budget. And guess what? It almost never is. Um, so timing is really important. And that's where I come back to that. You need to look at these things longitudinally and map out engaging over a period of time. But I think it's also important, depending on the trajectory of what you're trying to achieve, if you want to achieve it within a budget cycle or within an election cycle, within an election cycle, to map out those points of contact that you're going to have um, to be able to uh, achieve the outcome um, that you're seeking. Like timing is really, really important, not just when you make an ask, but everything that you do before that point, everything that you do after that point as well. We talk about the rule of three, 
where, you know, ideally you try and have three points of contact with a politician before you ever make a substantial ask. Uh, and that's really important in terms of that rapport building piece as well. Equally, you want to make sure you're not going and seeing if you get a meeting with an MP with a backbencher um, and be prepared for when they ask the question, so what can I do for you? How can I help? And you don't want to be empty handed. You want to have something. Uh, and that something can look like, well, look, we have an event coming up and we would love for you to attend or, you know, we've got this day that's coming up and we'd love for you to post on socials about it or do a 30 second, you know, um, speaking to the camera that talks about these points here and then help us promote it. Like they're sort of smaller asks that don't cost money, uh, that politicians are often happy to enact. They give you a bit of credibility. They help you achieve your mission in terms of spruiking what it is that you're talking about. Uh, and they also give the politician something as well, which is that connection to constituency, which is one of the most valuable things that social sector organisations have, is that they talk to everyday people every day. And those everyday people tend to be voters and politicians are trying to do the same thing. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, if you, uh, you know, work with values aligned politicians, you know, I'm not, sp I'm not saying go speak with someone who's diabolically opposed to your issue, although there's a role there, but it's a bit more complicated than to explain right now. Um, and, and find a way, um, that you can collaborate and work together on a common issue because chances are the politician believes in what you're trying to do. Um, they just need a salient way of being able to convey that to the constituency um to help them and do that over yeah, time that's great and I, I think what stands out for me about that answer is don't just be like hey it's great to meet you um and the politician might say what can i do for you you say oh well i want a million dollars maybe you know th there is sort of that um sometimes that short-termism and I, I think in a way the for-purpose sector has its own pressures and and that kind of leads to slightly um more short-termism than strategic thinking, long-term and relationship building. But the, the the idea there around asking for things that are very, very low cost, low touch and easy to do, but can be supportive and really make a big difference is just key. Like, you know, come to an event, be in the community, meet some of our, you know, our, our beneficiaries, uh, meet, meet with, have a chat with our board, you know, just simple stuff. Um, visit our site where we provide services and, and, and you get such big wins out of that. And there's a story there as well both parties there definitely is and i think one of the things that sort of popped to mind when you were saying that too was you know we focus on um uh supporting organizations to talk to governments but there are other stakeholder groups that we help them talk to as well uh you know in particular philanthropy um and it can be about nurturing those relationships with philanthropic partners as well um to try and bring philanthropy together with government to try and uh, achieve an outcome and a solution in that space as well. Um, I talk about three points of contact before you make a substantial ask. Um, I was, as part of another group that I'm a volunteer member of, um, Nexus Australia, uh, that works with uh, next-gen wealth givers, um, uh, we hosted a panel and one of the prominent uh, philanthropists there, I said, so how many touch points do you think people should have with a philanthropist before they make a substantial ask. And he said eight, probably more. Yeah. Went, wow. It's the relationship yep. building thing, right? It's coming yep. through again. And so, you know, you, you've got to consider all of those elements there in terms of uh, what was what's going to help bring your idea to life, what's going to help bring your solution to life. And so I think all yep. of those things are really important to consider. Yeah, I'm really happy that you brought that up because I was thinking of bring that up in the philanthropy sense that it's it's about three times as many meetings to get anywhere. Um, but yes. I mean, it's also because it's just 
it's different. And, and I think trying to put a number to the strength of a relationship is also a really weird thing to do because it's it's sort of, what if you have two really bad meetings but two really good ones? Is it still nine? Like, what's the right amount? So It's the rule of thumb, know, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's like, did we have good emails or texts in between? Was Did we have a good incidental conversation at a meeting? So, yeah, and all this stuff's funny to me because when it comes to, you know, board reporting season, everyone wants to know, you know, oh, who are you meeting with? You know, what are you talking about? And the thing that most people report on is the number of, and the quality of sort of some of these meetings. But yeah, it's um I, I think for me, these are all measures of the trust that the other party has for you and the respect for that they have for the mission that you're doing and and how on board are they with that? And are they at the point where they actually do want to become um, champions of your cause as well? And it's not just you then, it's a partnership uh, promoting the cause. Yeah, absolutely. And again, these things take time, um, but importantly, um, you want that time to be well spent. And in my experience, the best way to do that is to take a strategic approach. Uh, and it doesn't need to be, you know, and in many ways, I think it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a 25 or 100 page report that captures your, you know, quote unquote strategy. You need to keep it super simple. Uh, you know, we talk about the four pager, the strategy, tactics, problem, solution, and answering key questions within each of those in terms of defining the, the objective. And it should be, I think, aligned with your organizational strategy and then drilling down from that and identifying well, what are the specific programs um, or the specific policy or legislative changes that we're seeking that will actually make a difference to us. And what I find is that social purpose leaders can often articulate that very well. Um, the piece that we spend a lot of work with them on is translating that into a political narrative. Um, and the thing that I want to say about that is, is that that translation piece is not politicizing your issue, nor should it be. But I think people often, uh, and, and I want to acknowledge it's because, you know, you're trying to manage risk and all kinds of things here, but they often make the mistake of conflating the two as the same, and they're not. Uh, they, if you do it well, they're not. And I think it's really important. And again, you know, it's, if you get these things right and then you go through this engagement process and you talk to these people, you'd be amazed at what happens. And that's often what we see with our clients as well. You know, there's no success as guaranteed kind of thing. I would love to be able to do that, particularly because the work that our clients do, you know, upside working with impact focused organizations, they do great work. Downside, it doesn't always work. And so that, that hurts a little bit because you go, this is so important. But what it means is that you have to go back to the drawing board and try again. And I think there's the other point there that I made before that I want to bring back again. All of this stuff is cumulative. It's only wasted if you give up. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, and on that as well, uh, coming to the risk perspective, it is important to take uh, a broad or as broad as you're able to manage with the resources that you have at your disposal um, approach to building relationships across government because, you know, uh, ministers change. Sometimes they leave for good or bad reasons. Backbenchers change. They leave for good or bad reasons. And sometimes it's not because of an election. It's because something else has happened. It's politics. That's part of, you know, the spice of life in terms of what happens there, uh, which is why diversity across stakeholders is really, really important. So like diversifying your share portfolio almost. It is. It is exactly <laughs> like that. Yeah, absolutely. Now you've got a wonderful uh, engaging for impact white paper up on your website. What can people expect to find there? A fairly candid uh, insight in terms of how we think and how we work, respectful but candid. Um, I, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about some of the things that we, that, that we, that, you know, that we wrote and that I put into it, particularly around sort of excuse busting uh, in terms of the things that I often hear from people in terms of, oh, well, we can't do this. Um, and I think 
you know, if I was to summarize, uh, it's don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, focus on cumulative progress, um, focus on the small wins um, and see uh, reaching the bigger goal that you have um, as sort of crossing a pond with lily pads and making cr- progress across those lily pads is is really important. And the people should, at the start of the journey, set out uh, what success looks like, but also what progress looks like as well, so that they can see that they're actually making those you know, those gains towards the goal that they're that they're that they're working towards. And so the white paper has a whole host of suggestions in terms of what we see that people should try um, or should do. Um, but ultimately, it's about trying to inject optimism into what I see as um, sometimes, or what I hear often from people is uh, a really pessimistic sort of landscape. Government is big, it's complex, um, politics is contentious and it's difficult. We don't want to engage with that because we're worried about getting burned. And yes, there is a risk that that can happen to you if you don't take a strategic approach to it and if you're not pragmatic in the way that you approach it as well. Uh, And so the white paper really steps through at a high level all of the things that we do with our clients in terms of how we frame issues, how we talk to issues, um, how you deal with people who agree with you, but most importantly, or perhaps more importantly, how you deal with people who disagree with you. Um, And also coming back to that translation piece of how do we take your issue and put it through a political lens that translates it such that a politician gets it, they have an aha moment. In the 20 minutes that you probably got in the 30 minute meeting, but they have to, they, they were five minutes late and they're going to be five minutes early leaving. So you've got to be effective in the time that you've got with them and get them on side. Um, so that that meeting is productive and so that more comes out of that. Uh, and you actually achieve what you want to. The, the white paper really encapsulates all of those things. We've got some helpful case studies in there as well. Uh, and tips and tricks and, and links to external resources too, because there's a whole body of work. Uh, that we've committed to um, in our different blogs and this kind of stuff, which capture, you know, try to succinctly capture what we think is important. I often look at it and go, what is the one thing that I want people to take away from this that are going to, that's going to help them? Um, and we try to condense that and all of that work. And, and the white paper is, you know, I suppose a pinnacle point amidst all of that. That's great. One of the, I took away two important things from that. I mean, you talked about the risk of engaging in political action. I, I would say, what is the opportunity cost of the risk of not engaging effectively with government? Um, because that's, you know, you know, for so long, uh, government and philanthropy have been the bedrocks of good social purpose organisation funding and support. So, you know, if you don't have a plan or you're not engaging, um, think about the risk that, that's inherent there. But look, wonderful work that you're doing. Uh, very exciting. How can people connect with you, learn a bit more about Tank and, and a bit more about your work too? Absolutely. So, I mean, uh, I suppose there's LinkedIn. People are always welcome to reach out and connect. Um, drop me a little message in there as well. But there's also, if you go to our website, there's a contact form um, and you can get in touch there. Uh, of course, if you'd like to, uh, more than comfortable putting my email out here if you think that's a good idea. But it's just angus at tank.com.au. Remember, it's got a C in it, T-A-N-C-K. Um, and get in touch in that space. I'm, I'm based in Sydney, but I'm often in Brisbane, Melbourne. Um, you know, we can catch up for a coffee and that kind of thing, but there's always Zoom. Uh, it's probably one of the good things and the bad things, I suppose, of COVID, the big disruption. Like people are so much more accessible now than I think they used to be. Uh, and while there's Zoom fatigue and all those kinds of things, I think trying to meet virtually face-to-face is always helpful too. Equally, um, you know, there's Neil is 
uh, predominantly based in Melbourne, and he's down there, and you can always catch up with him too. Um, and we have uh, Rory, who's in Brisbane, who's fantastic to chat to, former advisor, and we've got Ellen in Adelaide, who's, who'd also be happy to catch up. So, you know, there's a bit of breadth and depth there in terms of um, who's available and who to talk to, but they're sort of some of the key points in that space, and we're always happy just to have a bit of a chat. Often what I find is I have a conversation with someone about what they're doing, and it's really just the beginning of their journey. Uh, and I treat that as let's let's just you know pretend you're a client, and I'm just going to give you free flowing ideas, and advice in terms of what I think you should go do, and go do with that what you can. And if we start working together tomorrow, fantastic. And if it's in a year or two, that's also fine with me because I think everyone's at different stages of their journey in terms of what they're trying to do. And what I hope when I have those conversations is that I'm able to give people a little bit of insight. Um, or enough optimism again and hope that they actually can achieve these things, that they can go off and go and do that. I think, um, you know, recently I had a conversation with two guys who were trying to sort of, who were trying to solve the issue of um, millennials in particular, but people from disadvantaged backgrounds also, um, you know, buy into or access the Australian Dream of Owning Your Own Home. They're doing a lot with very little, um, but it's pretty exciting to see what they've been able to achieve with the back of a conversation. Um, and that's, you know, that, that gets me out of bed in the morning. So I love having those conversations and those chats with people. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic, Angus, and just tremendous. You know, this sort of open front door policy and that, that kind of kind-hearted approach to give first um, is just phenomenal. So I'm sure you'll get uh, overloaded with emails in case people will forget to see, which would probably be beneficial. Uh, but we're really <laughs> excited at Humans of Purpose to be partnering with you for the next two months and to be bringing the messages, the great messages of your work to this sector. Um, and thanks for being with me here today. We look forward to bringing uh, another seven uh, fantastic guests and uh, and, and speaking a little bit more about Tank along the way too. Well, Thanks for being with me. My pleasure. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.